Welcome back to the In the Context of Empire podcast. This is your host, Matt McKenna. I am once again so privileged to be joined by Justin Poder. He's got lots of credentials, but he's very modest and insisted that I just let people know that he's been on the podcast before. He's actually our most frequent guest. So you can find that's all That's an award. That's like a that's like a, an award in itself. I should get a badge or something. <laughs> they're they're forthcoming in the mail. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, you can make a make a non fungible token. For <laughs> <years>. <laughs> it's going to be worth lots of money, allegedly. Uh, and you can find Justin's work, of course, at the Anti Empire Project, and of course, check out his work at poder.org. We'll talk about his podcast as well, I'm sure, as we go through this one. But I wanted people to know that I called Justin to get on this podcast because what I feel like is kind of a crucial moment, although it's always a crucial moment in leftist circles, but it does feel like we're at this moment where... <laughs> hey, Matt, can I... You know there, you know Hassan Nasrallah from Hezbollah in Lebanon? Yeah, the leader of Hezbollah. They, they, they make fun of him because that's he always begins one of his speeches where he's like, you know, we're at a major crossroads. Uh, this is a major moment in history. And everyone's like, yeah, okay. You said it Okay, time. Nasrallah, here we go again. Well... But I guess is, I, should, I should temper my my hyperbole, but we are at this point where I'm once again seeing more and more people who are allegedly on the left being very subject to anti-China propaganda, anti-Nicaragua propaganda, uh, going back years now, but the harsh criticism and inability to see a nuanced position on the war in Syria. And I do think, since I assume most of the people that listen to this podcast, well, they're definitely anti-imperialist, I think most of them probably consider themselves leftists. And I just want to put forth an argument that we've already talked about, and Justin and I have literally already talked about this. Uh, You've written about it, Justin, I've written about it, you've inspired me to write more about it. But why it is specifically that leftists in particular supposed anti-imperialists need to be careful with the language they use to describe official enemies, allegedly official enemies, of the imperial core. And what we wanted to do this podcast was talk about a few terms that are just batted around by people who, even leftists themselves, but often people who would criticize the anti-imperialist position when, say, we take a position more critical of the United States or Canada or Great Britain, we can throw them in too, than we do toward countries that are targeted by our home country. So the first thing I wanted to do is just start off with this term, whataboutism. We've heard it a lot in the last few years. It's been around a little longer than that. But Justin, what's your familiarity with this word, whataboutism? When did you start hearing it? And what behavior do you think we're being accused of when people's accuse us of this what about or what about is and what do you think about you know what's interesting it it makes me remember because there's there's two terms that that i heard about maybe 20 years ago gaslighting is one of them and what about is another one or what about is or what about and back then i don't know if it was 20 maybe 15 but like what a Bowdery was actually a thing I found leftists using. Uh, I remember people talking about it in the context of Israel or in the context of India, because those are uh, the, the official spokes for those countries are all about that. So if you talk about India and Kashmir, the Indian government will be like, <laughs> Pakistan and Balochistan, hello. So like, 
they don't want to answer about their own record, so they bring up someone else. And Israel, I mean, Israel, you know, Israel's defenders are always like, well, Zimbabwe or uh, Russia or whatever. So they'll 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 just throw a whole bunch of country names out there. North Korea, you know, haha, like that's just a gotcha. You just say the country's names. Enough said. So people were like. You know, you're avoiding the topic. Like you're you're engaging in whataboutism because that's like avoiding the the actual charge by trying to divert the charge from from you know the charge being made against you. So it's uh, I actually thought of it as kind of a benign term at that time. I was like, oh yeah, you know that makes sense. You know, nobody you should answer. You know, you should answer directly. You know, if, if you're being accused of of a crime, it's not. It's not really good practice to uh, divert from that crime, and uh, and similarly, like gaslighting was like a, a kind of a thing with from psychology and like abuse and stuff. And then I think some someone who didn't like Trump, some liberal who didn't like Trump, said Trump is gaslighting, and then got now gaslighting is everywhere and used across the board like anytime anybody says anything you don't like it's they're gaslighting you now <laughs> um, okay but now what, the the return of what aboutism i found i think it had something to do with um russia it was like in the context of uh liberals or like the trump russia thing they were trying to do or maybe when Russia was trying to defend Syria, something like this, but it was like they're using the Russian technique of whataboutism. So that was like the the idea that it was like a Russian Cold War Soviet technique of whataboutism. So when I had first heard it, it wasn't, I didn't, I hadn't heard about it as a Soviet technique, but then when I heard about it as a Soviet technique, I just thought that was so funny. I was like, so now, um, so now, the say like mentioning a case that's peripheral to the one that or that's not directly related to the one we're talking about is is a soviet technique it's not like a it's not like some it's not like a rhetorical thing that everybody has always done you know throughout history it's a soviet propaganda technique so i i thought that was pretty hilarious but yeah so now it seems that um, it's been like a lot of things that anti-imperialists use or leftists use. It's been completely co-opted um, virtually for exclusive use against us. So now, um, you know, if Israel is doing this or if the U.S. is doing, I mean, the U.S. is a separate case. But like if, if smaller countries like Israel or India or whatever are doing this, that's not called whataboutism. Now whataboutism is purely for people who are critics of the U.S. Um, and who don't want to then, as critics of U the U.S., who people who don't then want to talk about every country that the U.S. doesn't like as a response. So if you say, you know, gee starvation sanctions against Yemen or Iran or Venezuela or Cuba sure are nasty and they say well well you know those countries are bad and what do you have to say about their bad records and we say well that's not really what we're you know I'm talking about sanctions here and then they're like haha what about ism so it for me the way that it's become used now 
is a great example of how imperialists take over every every tool, every linguistic tool that leftists or anti-imperialists ever come to use and use it against us so that we're always having to come up with new words. And it's not because they take the words away from us, it's because they use those words um, against us and then change the, you know, they have, you know, they have all the megaphones in the world. So we can never, once they decide that the definition of a word is changed, we, we kind of have to move on. (laughs) It's, it's, there's no way to fight for the word. What about ism, you know? And it turns out as you're going to, I think, mention it, it's, it didn't start as our word. So it actually started as a, as an imperialist uh, accusation in the first place, apparently. Yeah, and I, that's what I wanted to mention. I mean, that you know, the small amount of research I did before this, uh, and largely it was li- just listening to another podcast, Citations Needed. They did a whole podcast about this term that I could just reference people to. But long story short, it's not. It is not even a Soviet term, as as many of the imperialists will claim it is, especially the last few years. It originated from the British accusing the IRA of whataboutism because, you know, the British during the Troubles would commit horrendous acts against Irish civilians, Irish Catholic civilians. And and members of the IRA, of course, would respond. uh, They committed their own acts of violence. And when the British would accuse them of brutality, members of the IRA would justifiably say, you're accusing us of brutality. Look what you've done around the world. This is like the 1970s, right? This is 240 years, if not more, into the into the British Empire. You know, they didn't conquer India, a good portion of Africa, parts of the Caribbean. They didn't do it by handing out flowers. This was a, a, a centuries of brutality. So they would be accused of what aboutery or what aboutism. So. In its origins, it's explicitly an imperialist defense. Right. Now, I think the reason it's come to be known as a Soviet explanation or a Soviet phrase is mostly from the whole Trump-Russia thing. It would be a lot of yeah. liberals, but also you know, mainstream conservatives would reference it as a Soviet term. And you even heard this from like liberals like John Oliver. He did a segment about it. But essentially, what they're referring to, and they won't openly say this, is that during the Cold War, the United States would level its propaganda against the Soviet Union, some true, some highly exaggerated, and the Soviet Union would respond in kind and say, and in your country, you lynch black people. And this this is not even controversial. Most people acknowledge that at least part of the civil rights legislation and... was motivated uh, on the part of the leaders. Obviously, we had a huge grassroots movement, but one of the reasons concessions were made is to not look as bad on the world stage when the Soviet Union was calling the United States out on, well, you have apartheid in your country, Jim Crow. You have segregation. You you have lynchings, hundreds of years, uh, hundreds per year at some point in your country's history. Your country's based on slavery. You support Suharto. You support South African apartheid. And... So what we see in the Trump era is that just all gets boiled down to it's a Soviet term. We don't, there's no need to investigate what the Soviet Union was actually saying and whether those things were true. Spoiler, they all were true. Yeah. It's just this thing, well, it's a Soviet term so it can be easily dismissed. And I think at one point, you probably remember this, right, I think it was right before he took office, Donald Trump did an interview with Bill O'Reilly 
And he's, yeah, we're not so we're not so innocent ourselves, something like that. Yeah, right? Bill O'Reilly says Putin. Putin's a killer. And he goes something to the effect of, "You don't think we have killers on our side? <laughs> you think we're so innocent?" Which is funny, but it's totally disingenuous because Trump, at the same time, was saying we need to kill terrorists and their family. Yeah, I don't think he. I mean, I think what he's saying is being a killer is not such a bad thing. I mean, it's you know, it's not the kind of there's a whole thing about hypocrisy we could talk about too like hypocrisy isn't necessarily a bad thing in the sense that someone who's not hypocritical is even more dangerous than someone who uh who's who doesn't think who doesn't think there's any need to hide the fact that they think killing people is a good thing and not a bad thing right like some a hypocrite is someone who who knows that it's bad PR at least to say those things so like the most depraved people this is something Bruce Lee said Bruce Lee was like you should you should beware of people who are not hypocrites um, because they're capable of even more ruthlessness uh, because they don't even they don't even give enough of a shit to to hide it right yeah and um, I guess so. what I guess we can talk about later I was, I was planning to talk about later is we can discuss toward the end like is exposing hypocrisy an end to itself because you know I think there is good evidence to say that the Soviet Union was embarrassing the United States and there were leaders yeah. who cared about how the United States looked on the world stage and, you know we don't know what kind of self-serving purposes that shame and and desire to not look hypocritical were serving but to any end, certainly having the Soviet Union as a global competitor and in calling the United States out did result in some progress. Uh, yeah. Just, Justin, I do want to ask you though, how much does the term whataboutism overlap with another accusation many people on the left receive? And that's uh, that we're tankies. You know, and this usually comes, I, I mean, it comes in many forms these days, but it, it'll come, I heard it, I think for the first time when Many of us on the left were two years ago when the Bolivian government was overthrown, ironically, by the military. People who were defending Evo Morales' right to stay in office, they were being called tankies, right? Immediately, many liberals and, and U.S. Republicans and Democrats immediately came out and, and accused Morales of corruption and, and were very, very quick to deny that there was a coup and, of course, most most everyone admits that it was a coup at this time. Most reasonable people admit that it was a U.S.-supported coup. But it's basically a term that's leveled out there for any defense of socialist projects from violent U.S. imperialism. So when did you start hearing that word tanky? And, and again, how do you, how do you define it? Uh, when is it brandished against us? I think I started hearing it around 2015 or 2013. It was Syria. Syria was a big turning point I found because for me in my life, like I think a lot of these splits existed uh, long before. Like I think a lot of a lot of the the left in in North America and in Canada and the U.S. is uh, you know closer to either Trotskyist or anarchist and so there's like a lot of hatred for what they call Stalinism or what they call actually existing socialism so they kind of they kind of think of everything that everything that like the so-called communist bloc has is is statist and and actually some form of capitalism which is Trotsky's thing right it's state capitalism it's not socialism 
or anarchists who think it's like all authoritarian states and dictatorships. So I think, um, I think that has always been there since, you know, since Trotsky came to the U.S. in the 30s or whatever it was, 20s or 30s or whenever, I guess it was the 30s. Um, but in my, you know, in my experience, you know, the first, I don't know, 15 years of, of my, you know, political work, I guess, whatever, activism uh, in the anti-war movement, it was it, like, I, I didn't really think about it all that much. Like it never really came up because it was just like, well, we're all anti-war, we're all pro-Palestine, we're all whatever. And then the Syria thing, like the Arab Spring, whatever, Libya, Libya happened really fast. So you know, it wasn't, it was, it was over before there could be a split. It was like, there were some stupid articles that I read where they were like, listen to the Libyan people bomb Libya. And I was like, this is bad. And I, I, some of these articles were written by friends of mine and I was like, Hey, this is bad. And they were like, no, you're not listening to the Libyan people. And, um, and I was like, something has happened here. And then Syria happened. And it was like a lot of people from the Palestine movement were like, you know, if you support Palestine, you have to support the overthrow of Assad in Syria. And I was like, this doesn't, I, I, like, you can't, I know you're Palestinian and I know you're oppressed and, and you know, I, I'll never, I'll never, like, I'll never support apartheid or anything like that. But you're wrong on this. Like, this is wrong. This is, this is wrong. You can't get me to, to see the, fit this square peg in this round hole. So it was like, that was when they were like, you're supporting a state or you're supporting, you know, you're supporting a dictatorship um, because you've become blinded by your, you know, anti-imperialism of fools, whatever, you still bear Ashkar had these various phrases, right? Um you know, and Ashkar is a great example because Ashkar is like part of some Trotskyist organization and he's, you know, one of the intellectual leaders of this thing. He's a prof in the UK somewhere, whatever. Um, so uh, that split was, was, I guess, always there, but it really came out um, in 2013. And that's when I got the, you know, that's when I got the sense that like lots of people that, I, you know, that we were in a, we had been in an alliance, you know, of, of different, uh, very different positions, but we just didn't, you know, it wasn't, I didn't know that. Um, and, you know, I, you know, for most of my, <laughs> my political life, again, I've thought of myself as an anarchist, but like most of the anarchists that I knew and whose work I knew were very pro-U.S. imperialism in these various cases. And that was also a big disappointment. And I was like, how can the, this doesn't make sense to me? But, it, you know, historically speaking, I guess it does. So that's when I started to see this tanky term. And it turns out when I looked it up, I was like, what does it mean? Why are people calling people? Like, it's such a cutesy term, right? Like, in a way, I kind of, I don't mind being called a tanky. The, like, I don't, I don't like being called a, you know, when you, people call you a genocide denier or something, it's like, whoa, that's nasty, or an anti-Semite or something. And it's like, you guys are, geno like, you guys are pro-genocide imperialists. Like, I don't, I don't have to take any criticism from any of you, but, but like, that kind of charge makes me really angry really fast, right? Because it's like, who the hell do you think you are but like tanky is kind of cute it's like this cute little you know it, it, like you, the, the way that it sounds and like the uh, the ie at the end like it's it's almost like it's all in good fun or something 
um, it's rid- it's ridiculing you a little bit, I guess. But I I don't I don't find it as you know I don't find it as like as offensive as some of the other nasty things imperialists call me. So tanky, I just uh, it turns out it comes from like I think either 1956 or 1968, like one of the times that the Soviet Union intervened in one of the East Hungary. countries. I think it was Hungary. Hungary, so Prague, Prague Spring or something like this. I think that was the um, Czechoslovakia. Oh, that's Czechoslovakia. See, I don't know this. I haven't looked into this history. Yet. I, I'm fine. I'm planning to do it after when we get there in the in the civilization <laughs> series. So I, I try not to read that far ahead. Um, I've never I've never seriously studied Eastern Europe. Just you know, I've never gotten around to doing. That's that, like so. when I'm teaching U.S. history in the beginning of the year. I say I'm. Be careful! I'm only I'm only one lesson ahead of everyone here, so I don't want any spoilers. I still don't know mm-hmm. how the U.S. Civil War ends. I'm going to be upset <laughs> if you ruin it for me. <laughs> well, you know, I did have a I had a physics uh, prof that said that once. He 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 said you don't have to know to teach; you just have to learn faster than your students. <laughs> um, I thought that was pretty good, but yeah. So I I I have um you know I know a lot about quite a few places but eastern europe isn't isn't really one of them so uh i'll get there i'll catch up but the point is uh, during this intervention the english left had a split between people who supported the soviet union and people who didn't and and the people who didn't presumably again it was probably like trotskyist anarchists um you know people who opposed the soviet union in general they started calling the pro-Soviet people tankies. And I guess, I gather that's what it always kind of boils down to. Like, people who are accusing you of supporting some communist country um, rather than uh, the imperialists who are standing up for the people or something, right? Like, because every intervention is... This is one thing that I get, that I see, like studying imperial history, going back to the British Empire, is there are no. I thought I thought humanitarian intervention was like coined in 1999 for the bombing of Kosovo and the breaking up of Yugoslavia, but I, uh, you know, it turns out there are no non-humanitarian interventions. Every imperialist intervention ever has been a humanitarian one. They've always done it for the best and the best interests of the people they were killing and slaughtering and murdering and stealing from, every single time. Opium war, you know, Indian, 1857, Jamaica, 1865, Jamaica, 1832, like every every time they did it, they did it for the good of the people they were. The whole scramble for Africa was to stop slavery. And sometimes even they claim self-defense. Like, didn't Hitler even claim like Poland yeah. was a dagger or Czechoslovakia dagger, was yeah. a dagger aimed at the, heart of at the heart of Germany? Yeah. Um, well, that that is a great explanation, and also it points to you the utter ridiculousness of people claiming those of us who would have supported the Evo Morales government staying in power were the tankies, despite that it was literally the military in that case trying to overthrow yeah, him. Yeah, I mean, like. All the tanks, the tanks are all on the other side, right? Like, I mean, like every time there are literally tanks deployed in the world, it's like Israel, France, and Africa, 
um, you know, in various West African countries, like right now there are French imperialist troops driving around on tanks in Cote d'Ivoire or whatever, Niger. Um, you know, there's tanks, there's Canadian light armored, armored vehicles all over, running all over Yemen, you know, the, the Saudi genocide in Yemen. But where the where the tankies, right? Right, and I guess what I want to get to, and I think this is a good segue, is like you you're, you make a good point that all interventions are claimed to be humanitarian. You brought up uh, Kosovo, and and I think you you probably were referring to the Bosnia War of '95 as well. Those were like big time. Like people today will phrase those as well. Those are the times the humanitarian interventions worked. But even those, yeah, they stopped genocides. Yeah, yeah they, allegedly. They and then, if, like, if you read, like, same with Libya, Libya, you know, Gaddafi went on TV and said we're going to fight house to house. So we're going to take the country back house to house. So like they were like, well, that's incitement to genocide. So obviously he had to be bombed. It's like every time anybody has like, you know, every time any leader has said, we're go, I want my troops to win. That's genocidal then. Right. Like, which maybe it is, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe war is always genocidal, but then if that, and in that case, what are these imperialists doing supporting all these wars? I guess that's a piece of whataboutery right there. I just yeah, and I, I guess for me, like, because I've read more about it, like the Libya one and now more, more and more the Syria situation seems like that's easy to pick apart, but I didn't know as much about the Balkan Wars of the 90s until recently I read uh, Michael Parenti's book, uh, it's To Kill a Nation. Mm. And it's just as obvious that there were other intentions at play oh my God, there. there's some good for your for your um listeners there's some really good documentaries put out by this um by this documentarian uh and he's done three and two of them the third one is only available in serbian i think i don't think it's available in in english but um I'm going to try to find it. They're really, really good. Um, but I think it's going to be really hard for me to find them by search. So I, I'm <laughs> no, going to search. Email me after and we can just plug yeah, them in. I'm going to search my YouTube history. But um, go well, ahead and, t yeah, let's, let's talk a bit more about some other stuff. So you know. I think when you bring up these points, like, yeah, people end up, supposed anti-war people will end up supporting things like the Kosovo intervention or the Libya intervention or the Syria intervention. A lot less probably supported the Iraq intervention just because just because that was so blatant. I think since then they got better at their propaganda. That was one that I asked people about too, like people who people who you know when the when the anti-war alliance broke apart over. Um, over Syria. Syria, I was like, why did you why were you against the war in Iraq then? Right, it's, and, it, and it's like, often the same charges, right? The chemical weapons, yeah, exactly. etc. Bad guy. Um, and you know, and you'll see liberals slash some people on the left today, like they'll echo the claims about Cuba, about Nicaragua, and they'll say, "Well, of course, I don't want war against those countries." But as you've written about extensively, and I've written about a little bit, you realize that you are you are helping a war against those countries happening. You're certainly helping sanctions yeah. against those countries happening. And not all of us have a huge platform, but you ha everyone has a platform, right? You are well, a father, you're a friend, you're a social media poster. 
and it's it's not exactly that like i i I agree with that i don't disagree with what you what you're saying matt but the main issue the main point of this is to just prevent the formation of an anti-war movement like that's what it's about it's about stopping nipping that in the bud before anything can get going and like that's the target right the target for this propaganda is the people who would be inclined like the left right the people who would be inclined to be uh anti-war and so those are the people that they go after and they go after them with these messages of authoritarianism and dictatorship and they're equally bad and they're and so it's it's the whole point is to demobilize disorganize and uh demoralize people for and that was that was good that that were the three d's three d's there you go that was gonna happen coin that um but but you know that's the point. The point is the, to 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 prevent uh, any kind of anti-war movement from happening. So it used to be like when I understood in the early two thousands what I understood the anti-war movement to be doing is like we're building an alternative to the mainstream um, liberal kind of pro-war consensus and we have our own little media and we have our own networks and we have our own organizing and that's what we're trying to do. What happened? you know, the way they defeated us um, was by infiltrating all of that. They infiltrated our alternative media and they infiltrated our organizing networks. And maybe they had that all, again, like when you look at the history of the 60s and 70s and so on, those things, they, they had infiltrated us. They have infiltrated, infiltrating our movements is something they always do. Uh, but again, in my experience, it was like, oh so they're now inside our movements and they're like turning our brains inside out with this uh you know this kind of propaganda that that it's actually tanky it's actually you know authoritarian and pro-dictator and whatever pro-genocide to oppose these wars by the way i found it in my youtube watch history it's called the weight of chains and the uh, the director is Boris Malagurski. All right, um, I'm gonna watch it, and it's also going in the show notes. Yeah, really good. And then Diana, you maybe have heard of Diana Johnstone's Fools. I think it's called Fools Crusade. Uh, that's a that's a monthly review book. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah, it's it's it also uh, NATO, Yugoslavia, NATO, and Western delusions. Also, yeah, that book was like very uh, hard for me to uh, to swallow, but like it all checked out. In the yeah, end. and and you know, you Michael Parenti, John Pilger, they've written great stuff about the Kosovo War in particular, but. The, the larger picture here is why I want to talk about whataboutism. And, and, you know, the next thing I want to talk about is what do we think about this charge? And why, why is it deployed? And I think the reason they u- the defenders of imperialism will use this is because whataboutism is a really good argument. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a really obvious argument to make. Uh, it's an es- extremely effective point. In short, it shows that the very reasons that Western imperialism, the United States specifically, declares to be their justifications for war, sanctions, demonizing of other countries, and otherwise extreme, sometimes genocidal violence, are not the actual values that it holds. So it allows us to look more broadly and we can say, you know, obviously the United States in the Kosovo War, which we just talked about, was definitely not concerned about the crime of genocide. 
Uh, obviously, the United States today is really not that concerned about the fate of Muslims in China. They just killed a million, more than a million Muslims in, in, over the course of several wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, etc. Yeah. Yemen, of course. So it, it's why whataboutism is extremely valuable. So of course, this tool that we have to point out Western hypocrisy is going to be reversed and thrown back at us. Uh, exactly. And I do want to go through some examples, but I, before I get into like the obvious examples of this, which are there are literally thousands of, I want to know: yeah. Do you have any thoughts about like why they choose to deploy this uh, this particular? Yeah. Insult? So, you know, it's not okay. Here's the nugget. Here's the nugget of of truth, right? Because propaganda always works because there's some truth. Well, not always. There's not always some truth. Sometimes it's entirely fabricated. But, but the nugget of truth is that from a from a strictly logic or critical thinking perspective, if I say, "Hey, you just committed murder," and you say, "Yeah, but so did ten other people," <laughs> that's not um, that's not an that's not an answer. That's not a refutation of the charge. Right. So from a logical perspective, it's like you are in some sense changing the subject. But in the real world, it provides context. And it's not just so did 10 other people that it's so did you. you right? <laughs> right. So it also discredits uh, the person making the accusation because it it shows that the person making the accusation doesn't actually care about the crime they are they have some other agenda at work so it's those elements of context that anti-imperialists are trying to bring in that imperialists don't like um so that's i think that's where you know that's where there's if there's any again if there's any truth to that accusation that's where that's where it is um but well, but again it's it's uh it's not the it's not the gotcha <laughs> that they think it is either. Yeah, and I think sometimes people will call into question, well, do you think country X is not doing these things? Well, in some cases, yes, I do actually think that we're being lied to, but it's more yeah. it's more emphasis. It's why are you yeah. emphasizing these crimes and not these crimes? I'm sure you've seen yeah. or re I'm sure you've read, but also the documentary Manufacturing Consent where yeah. Chomsky puts he shows a case study. There was a genocide. There were two genocides happening in the 1970s, side by yeah. literally like in the same region of the world, Cambodia and East Timor. And he rolls out. This is you know the movie's made in like 1991, so he it's kind of like corny, but he rolls out like the New York Times inches of coverage of one genocide versus the other, and of course. It's like 1,100 inches of coverage of the Cambodia genocide mm -hmm. and the East Timor genocide, which was committed by, with U.S. backing, many people say with U.S. encouragement. Uh, Henry Kissinger and Gerald Ford had left Indonesia literally the day before the, the Indonesia invaded East Timor. A higher percentage of the of the East Timorese population was killed. It was being committed with U.S. arms at the genocide at its worst point. Had 90% of its arms shipped to it by the United States. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the representative to the UN, was bragging that they 
they undermined every proposal by the UN to stop the genocide. And yet the, UN, the New York Times, as compared to 1,100 inches of coverage for the Cambodian genocide, did 70 inches of coverage for, for East Timor. So it's emphasis matters, right? So, and it, Chomsky makes the point, it's like, this is not like benign, like bad news coverage. This, they're complicit because these genocides only can persist without people knowing about it. And, and I, you know, of course the examples are endless, but I just want to call to attention just a few points. And of course, Justin, I'm sure you know many examples too. It'd be nice to get a Canadian perspective too, because I know mostly about U.S. crimes, but... Uh, so let's just go through a few examples here. In 2003, the United States attacked Iraq on the false charge that Iraq had chemical, biological, nuclear weapons. And today, the United States continues to antagonize Iran. We could add North Korea in there as well. But Iran on the literally false accusation of attempting to develop a nuclear weapons program. Meanwhile, the United States has nearly 6,000 nuclear weapons. The United States is literally the only country to ever use a nuclear weapon against a civilian population, or any population for that matter. The United States supports Israel's possession of nuclear weapons. The United States does not support a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East, a, a, a proposal that Iran has supported many times. There are four nuclear-armed powers in the world that are not party to the NPT. Three out of the four are U.S. allies. Pakistan is India and Israel. And I could throw in there in terms of like chemical weapons. I can't think of a larger use of chemical weapons in world history than what the United States did to Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos with Agent Orange and napalm. Uh, you know, we throw in the use of depleted uranium in Iraq, uh, in Kosovo for that matter. The, so when we hear white, the charge white of white phosphorus, when we hear the charge of chemical weapons or any WMDs for that matter, just like, like clearly the biggest perpetrator of chemical weapons abuses and supporter of other countries with all sorts of, of quote unquote WMDs is not that concerned about their use. They're concerned about some countries having them. And in the case of Iraq, they almost certainly knew that they did not have them. And of course, we. The I mean, other in the run-up to the war against Iraq, to the invasion of Iraq in '03, you know, which followed more than a decade of sanctions, the sanctions of which followed, you know, bombing campaign in 1990-91, which was full of war crimes and destruction of civilian infrastructure. That was the good Iraq war, Justin. You don't know. You yeah. don't know the liberals. <laughs> that, that was yeah, the one Colin right. Powell needed to be celebrated for. NPR yeah. literally ran a piece like the tale of two Iraq wars, and the point was that he should be proud of his legacy. War. It was the same war. It was a continuous war on, on the Iraqi population, yeah. right? They killed, again, like half a million children from the sanctions alone. How many from the initial bombing? How many adults? How many milit You know, the military people that were like killed in that Turkey shoot in 91, retreating from Iraq, where they were like playing music, rock music, and just bombing retreating soldiers but anyway the um in the run-up to the 03 war there was a lot of you know you could have done one of these exercises because there was a there was a whole bunch of column inches on the darfur genocide which is completely gone now like nobody talks about the darfur genocide but there was the sudan sudan was was conducting a counterinsurgency in darfur um you know i i, I believe they were killing civilians but it was like you know, upgraded to a genocide as the U.S. was 
ramping up the, the war in Iraq. And I actually think it continued as the U.S. was conducting the war in Iraq. Yeah, that was, was like, that was going on to like 2006, 2007 at least. Yeah, yeah. so 03, yeah, exactly, 03, 04, 05, 06. Again, and I, I again, you know, I, I don't think that it was like, I don't think that the anti-war movement was not like a big target of this propaganda, right? Because it's like, how can you oppose the war in Iraq and not oppose the genocide in Sudan, and what are we going to do about the genocide in Sudan, um, in Darfur? And so, you know, again, I'd refer people. Mahmoud Mamdani probably wrote the best uh, kind of discussion of of what was really going on in in Darfur, but also like the the media and the relationship to the Iraq War. So yeah, like the charge of genocide in in Darfur was brought up specifically to kind of launder um, the Iraq, you know, the genocidal war against Iraq. Nobody ever calls it that, right? So it's like, uh, it's not just Iran-Iraq here. There's like all kinds of triangulation going on. The axis of evil, right? There was that whole um, axis of evil. And uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I get like, it, I know it's like obvious to us, but it's, it, it it bears repeating because like like it's so glaring and it, it, it like this needs to be explained to people who maybe don't know you know the, not that I I don't claim to know everything about these events but like they're pretty glaring things to mention when you hear for example I mentioned before the United States is very concerned about alleged genocide being con- committed against Muslims in China now there's all kinds of flaws with the metrics used to determine if genocide's being con- committed but that said the United States has, as I mentioned has killed over a million Muslims since 9/11 is literally supporting genocide right now in Yemen I don't think that's an exaggeration to say that what's going on in Yemen is and has been a genocide since 2015. Presided over the Iraq sanctions in 19 through the 1990s, which UN uh, rapporteurs quit and resigned, and two of them quit, claiming that the sanctions were genocide. Uh, they and you know this, this is something that I know you've written about and I've written about. The United States has supported several genocides since the the Holocaust, where, where the slogan is never again. Well, the United States supported the genocide in Indonesia, East Timor, was complicit in the genocide in East Pakistan, was directly supportive of the genocide in Guatemala, uh, complicit in the genocide in Somalia, they call it the Isak genocide, uh, and as you've written about, certainly complicit in creating the situation where the Rwandan genocide happened, certainly complicit in creating the situation where the Cambodia genocide happened. Uh, and it's just like, the, the United States, genocide is not, just not a concern for the United States. No, it's uh, not even a word that ever applies. The, the U.S., uh, you know, we, lately... This and and the, the Uyghur issue is interesting, too, because, like, they, they extrapolate genocide based on basically the accusation that China is imprisoning people. So there's like, you know, there's different words for it. They call them camps or concentration camps or re-education camps. But it's basically like China's imprisoning these people um, and and there could be up to a million people in these camps, you know, based on this survey of eight people that they did. <laughs> um, so they did the survey of eight people, they multiplied by the population and they concluded, you know, it could be up to a million. And then they've even inflated it beyond a million now. But like, the U.S. has 
two million people in prison, I think. To more. Today. Yeah. 2.3 million, and then I think it's half a million people just in jails who can't pay bail. They're, it's the, uh, one of two countries in the world that imprisons people if they can't pay bail. It keeps yeah. them in jail. So there's this, there's this, like, it's genocide if, if we're right, there's a million people in jails in this province of China, and that must be genocide. But, like, if 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 we're right, our extrapolations are right, they have one-third as many people, <laughs> right? Like, it, but nobody ever thinks that. And I mean, I had this, I had this conversation with someone, I, I, I won't say who, uh, listeners <laughs> may eventually, this may, this may happen on microphone, but I had a conversation with someone where they were like, well, what about, you know, like it, literally, what about, you know, like, what do you have to say about you know the the some basketball thing. You might your listeners may know about it. Some some basketball guy. I don't follow back. The only sport I know about is MMA. So I don't. You know some basketball guy. I guess criticized China, and then was made to apologize because China threatened to boycott. They stopped showing games from this team that he managed. Anyway, it was some something like this, and he said, you know. You know how? What? What do you? You know what do you think of that? Like that? Don't you think that's wrong to like infringe on somebody's for China to infringe on this American's right to criticize China? And I was like, this guy's an American criticize. You know, it goes back to everything that we always say. I was like, this guy's an American criticizing China. What kind of act of courage is that? Who cares? He knows China is not going to do anything about his criticism. If he had any heart at all, to paraphrase Finkelstein uh, in his famous speech, he would be criticizing the American prison system and the and police power in in the U.S. Um, I don't know if you you saw this. There's this I, I know the controversy. I I, I also yeah. I, I when I was a kid I used to follow the NBA, but I I know the controversy you're referring to. I I, I don't want to embarrass myself by trying to guess which NBA player. <laughs> I'm going to name. No, it wasn't play. a player. It was some manager or something. Oh, some kind of manager. Oh, I think Houston. it was. Steve the manager, Kerr. maybe a, there's a there's a famous Chinese basketball player. I think oh. he plays on this team. Yeah, Yidao, I don't want to embarrass myself. So okay, okay. <laughs> but I know um, the controversy you're referring to, and it you know it, it goes back to you know stuff that you said, stuff that I've heard Chomsky say. It's like, what is the point? It's not that. Yeah. Well, I do actually deny. I, I would say that it's a yeah. huge abuse of the word genocide to call yeah. what China is doing genocide. Uh, yeah. I would. You know, I don't want to get into specifics, but I, I know that China has a does have a problem with extremism in that particular province. I know yeah. that the East Turkestan Islamic movement has committed acts of terrorism. I know that China deals with acts of terrorism far more than the United States does. That doesn't justify anything that any government does in, in terms of abuse of a population. But maybe China should adopt the American policy toward terrorism and invade seven invade countries, countries and kill, and kill four million people. Maitreya Bakal, he's a guy on Twitter that I really, an Indian guy on Twitter, mostly tweets about China and India and the U.S. That's like his three things. Anyway, he, he has this thing where he's like, let's compare anti-terrorism programs, you know. U.S. anti-terrorism program invade and mass murder millions of people in different in other countries. India's 
anti-terrorism program, uh, you know, occupy Kashmir mm -hmm. with the largest foot military footprint, <laughs> you know, in Asia and kill hundreds of people every single year. Um, China's uh, anti-terrorism program, you know, re-education camps. And he's like, I'm not saying any of them are good. I'm just saying China's the least of all possible evils. Like, China's way better than India, and India is way better than the U.S. Yeah, uh, and if people press me on, like, do you think this government's doing X, I usually say, like, I don't see the utility in having that conversation. But, you know, if you, if you want to talk about a country, China at least can ward off some of the propaganda by the U.S. and has the power to resist U.S. imperialism. Yeah. Whereas, if someone asks me, like, what is Cuba doing to journalists, or what is Venezuela doing to opposition leaders, you, you just have to refer them to, like, what do you imagine it's like to be a state under siege by the most powerful nation and empire in human history? And I know you, you know this guy, Domenico Lacerdo, where he talks about... Oh, yeah, it's so good. Like, so good. authoritarianism is not a product of a choice of government. It is the, it is the situation a government is placed in. Now, yes. it doesn't apply in 100% of cases. But if you wanted to create authoritarianism, all you would have to do is have a major threat. And all you need to do to understand that is look at how the United States behaves when it has even minor threats or challenges to its authority. Yeah. Uh, during World War I, the United States suspended civil liberties, passed the Espionage Act, arrested thousands of anti-war demonstrators, imprisoned a candidate for president, Eugene Debs. Uh, for a long time, right? Like, yeah, yeah, like nine years. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like 30 days of suspended right. sentence or whatever. During the Cold War, the McCarthyism, uh, the, the National Security Act, during the War on Terror, you know, we have a, a I don't want to say minor because people, you know, I, I appreciate that September 11th was a major attack and, you know, I lived, near, I lived very close to New York City at the time and I still do. I understand that was a major attack. But the United States crackdown on civil liberties, the spying internally on Muslim communities, the obviously the war on terror, the indefinite detention. It is not hard to understand that states become more, if you wanted to create a more authoritarian state, you have to understand that outside threats are the key way of doing it. And yet, somehow Americans can't understand why Cuba might, be, might just be worried about how their internet might be abused by or utilized by the United States, uh, especially when they've notably been trying to do it. They created a fake Twitter for Cuba, <laughs> uh, the, the National Endowment for Democracy and the CIA. Uh, you, a state like Cuba born into, into a war hoisted on it by the, by the most powerful nation ever 90 miles from its shores. Do you think that might create a society that is less open to being to having free institutions that can be exploited it's really not that hard to understand if you just look at how these contexts look you live it like if you're an american you live in the most powerful country ever and your government resorts to extremely authoritarian measures when it's threatened even in the slightest way how does a little country like cuba survive and it has survived probably because it's had some uh closure of democratic institutions so I don't even think it's worth engaging in that conversation with like, what is Cuba doing to their people? It's like, well, if you want them, if you want democracy in Cuba, then uh, just just imagine the United States was under blockade and constantly being threatened to be invaded. Do you think that we'd be more or less democratic? <laughs> 
and open yeah. as a society. I don't even know what people mean when they say democracy anymore. It's like you have a two-party system in the U.S. They they have almost no differences in policy. There's no way for a third party to make any inroads, which is why, like, every time there's some kind of socialist upsurge, it takes place inside the Democratic Party, and then it is stomped by the Democratic Party on, like, on like schedule. Like, you can set your watch by it. And even the socialists, Bernie Sanders, AOC... Bernie Sanders like will support sanctions on Venezuela. <laughs> AOC will say that Julian Assange shouldn't be uh, pardoned. You know, like these, yeah. they they totally so, have bought the imperialist line, hook, line, and sinker. And they, I don't even like democracy was like a system in Athens. You know, the Paris ancient Athens, the Paris Commune in eighteen seventy, maybe some Swiss cantons that have direct democracy, and it. You know, it rare. It doesn't last all that long either. So I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know. like this. This repre- This these these representative oligarchic systems based on like unlimited amounts of corporate money being poured into electoral rituals. In the electoral college and <laughs> like a, you know two parties and like media monopolies uh, on what you're allowed to say and think. Like this is. I don't like again like what about her like these are not people who can talk about democracy uh anywhere yeah uh just an aside before I get to our last few examples here that I interviewed a, a guy named John Gazvinian he wrote a, a pretty good book about the history of Iran but he when I was talking to me I was asking like how Iranian elections work and he was explaining to me like it's partially democratic and like the, his words essentially saying like well they have elections but the people who run are chosen by the council they have to be approved by the council mm. and i was like yeah but you know in the united states you know people who yeah. 95% of the people who even get to run for office have to have sufficient backing by corporate america yeah. like we're talking we're not talking about a, a very diverse group of at least ideologies that get to run for office here um and i just want to give like a few more examples and then absolutely we can move on to kind of closing and talking about the ideas of moral equivalency uh just something really funny that's in the news lately i'm sure you've seen the accusations of havana syndrome um basically like some cia agents like we're hungover, or I don't know, <laughs> but, but there's like this accusation that Cuba developed a weapon that's never been seen to exist other than in science fiction movies, and there's this accusation the Cuban government, maybe with help from the Russian government, uh, it input this thing called Havana syndrome in U.S. government employees, and I said, well. There's very little proof of that. There's a lot written about how it's bullshit. However, I would love to hear see a study of Washington D.C. syndrome. That's that's me coining that <laughs> phrase and distorts it, your brain, right? So Washington D.C. syndrome is you know you can just go to Fallujah and see where cancer rates are like 14 yeah. times higher than the cancer rates and birth defect rates in in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the atomic bombings. That's documented by the, the journalist uh, Dar Jamel. Uh, he, he went there and studied it. And Or you could go to Laos or Cambodia or Vietnam and talk to the generations of people affected by 
the birth defects caused by U.S. use of Agent Orange that burnt that not to mention birth not just birth defects but also burned down entire sections of rainforest. Uh, you could go to any number of places, Okinawa, most recently Hawaii, and talk to people whose drinking water has been poisoned by the U.S. Navy, and we could have a real conversation about. Washington DC syndrome and we're going to see more of it as climate change takes its toll and people just become more aware that the US military is the largest institutional polluter. And you know, Justin, I I have a kind of a funny line to close on with these like examples here, but I don't know, the, the, are there similar analogs with Canada? I'm sure there's some that we could talk I mean, about. you know, Canada like in incredibly uh fast and efficient manner passed some resolution condemning china for genocide against the uyghurs and like at the at the exact time when thousands of um unmarked graves of indigenous children were being unearthed and are still being unearthed like the story has died down but like they they have they have killed and buried they kidnapped and killed and buried thousands of children uh, in this country, purposely to destroy the culture, the indigenous cultures of this country, and they started doing it in the 1800s, and they only stopped in the 1980s or something. And today they're doing it through the foster system. The the, the country, Canada loses cases. I've written about this. Canada loses these cases in court over and over, and and continues to fight them. Um, so it's just yeah, Canada's no different. Britain is no different. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, you know, they're all they're all part of this this racist genocidal project that is like dedicated to trying to accuse others of all the things that they do. I mean that that's the other thing about like like what about her is it's it's such an interesting entry into actually deeply thinking about these things because um like I've been trying to figure another one of these what about it or things is like Stalin, the idea that Stalin committed genocide against Ukrainians and against peasants in the 1930s because there were famines in the 1930s. There were, you know, there were big famines right after the Russian Revolution. And then there was another round of famines in the 30s. Um, and, you know, the the right wing, like a lot of the Nazis or the, you know, a lot of the Ukrainian right wing or Ukrainian Nazis and Ukrainian Canadian Nazis and um, and so on have made, uh, you know, have, have claimed that this famine was a deliberate genocide. So it's like trying to equate Stalin and Hitler, right? Trying to equate the Soviet Union with Nazis. You know, it's that whole analysis, which is like, Nazis, uh, you know, it's like a Goldilocks thing, right? Like Nazis are too genocidal on the right and communists are genocidal on the left and like British imperialism is that just right, right in between, right? They never do any, liberals are, are just perfect because they're in the middle. Um, meanwhile, you know, the British <laughs> killed many more people than the Nazis did, right? Like in, in you know, in, in numbers, um, you know, and lots of black writers pointed that out, that like what the Nazis were doing in Europe was what the British were doing all over Africa and Asia. Um, so um, the, 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 the famines and the argument, you know, or the claim that, that uh, these, were, these were genocides by Stalin 
um, it's like when I read, I've been I've been looking into this a lot lately. I've been trying to uh, un- analyze, you know, Stalin's rule over the Soviet Union in particular, because it's like it's one of those it's one of those ones that like. I, you you have to start by not believing one damn thing <laughs> that that is said, right? Like you cannot believe anything. You can't take anything at face value. But then it's like, okay, so how do I how do I get into this? How do I figure out what's true? But one thing that's really interesting is that a lot of the things that are claimed by Nazis about Stalin are things that Nazis either were doing or were planning. And like a lot of the things, a lot of the accusations of the way that that Stalin supposedly did these, like took food away from, you know, hungry families and like destroyed food stores and and so on. These were all things that the British did in Ireland and India. Like I I don't know, I don't think um, that Stalin did them. I don't know for sure yet. But I, you know, what I've been what I've been based on my study so far, I don't think that Stalin did this but I know that the British imperialists did this and so like it not only did the um, British imperialists sorry to interrupt you Justin but yeah. not only did they do this they did this while the British government was fighting Nazism in Bengal right yeah. and and yeah, I think exactly. Winston Churchill was asked about it and he was pretty unapologetic it basically yeah. they what do, they they breed too much ascendant like talking about people I guess in modern day Bangladesh but basically Saying they have too many kids. Yeah. So, um, so, and, and I had an Israeli friend uh, who who worked for Betzalem, and actually right. around two thousand three or four, and she said, you know, if you want to know what Israel is planning to do, look at what they accuse the <laughs> Palestinians of doing, or what the Arabs are doing. Like that, the best clue to what they're planning or what they're doing is actually what they accuse others of doing. So that's like a whole other element to this whataboutery where you realize um, they're, they're so depraved and they're so sophisticated that they actually, you know, only give away their worst plans by accusing others of those things. Well, they just can't imagine that anyone yeah. would think yeah. differently, right? So it, yeah. it, it is the, the limits of their own imagination. <laughs> and uh, That's from, Lord, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, that's one of, I mean, Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was an imperialist. Uh, obviously in a racist but that's one of my favorite things from lord of the rings because the the fellowship of the ring you know gandalf says you know our one advantage is that sauron who's like the representative of evil can't imagine that we could have this power and not use it like he's like if if because he knows that if he had it he would be taking over the world with it so he assumes he he doesn't believe we have it but they did you know they had the ring and they were trying to destroy it I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I want to, I know we, we're close to out of time. I, I just want to call a few examples that are so ridiculous that people probably won't believe them unless they just look up the documented facts. But literally, sometimes it's, I'm talking about the United States, it, they'll accuse other nations of doing the exact same thing that l- the United States previously collaborated sometimes just years earlier with that exact same government not even the country like under a different government and you can just look to so the united states invaded iraq in 1991 because 
it did. I mean, no, no one doubts that Iraq did invade Kuwait. I mean, technically, that's a violation of international law. L literally, it's two years earlier, the United States had been supporting Iraq, and ten years earlier, it had supported Iraq in in invading Iran, an invasion that was far bloodier than its invasion of Kuwait. I think the Iran-Iraq war ended up killing over a million people. Um, you know, of course, the United States supported Saddam Hussein as he used chemical weapons, again, a charge that they later attacked him for. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the, the, and the other interesting one is that the United States currently has sanctions on Syria on the charge that it tortures prisoners. There's one huge caveat, though, and that's that the United States collaborated with the Assad government to torture a Canadian citizen in 2002. There's a, uh, a Syrian Canadian named Mahar Arar, and basically the CIA abducted him as he transferred at JFK Airport in New York City and just renditioned him to Syria where he was tortured for a year before he was returned to Canada and you know he wasn't he wasn't actually the person that they had thought he was but now you know 17 years after that the United States is leveling sanctions on Syria accusing them of torture it's like they have no they're just counting on that no one has any historical memory that that this stuff isn't easily available to look up so there is no there is no shame and hypocrisy, which I guess, you know, when we talk about what aboutism and, and, and if you want, you can mention moral equivalency. I think these things largely mean the they're basically the same charge or calling us tankies. I guess my final question for you, Justin, is like, does it matter? Like, should we keep doing this? Do they even like, do they care if we call them out on the hypocrisy? And it's like, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not in a White House press secretary meeting and, you know, but you know, even if I was there, like, do officials care, people who make policy, do they care about how, how hypocritical they look? It's not like this information is that hard to find. It's really easy. Like, I'm not an expert in this stuff. And yet it's really easy to find that the very things that they claim they go to war for are not the things that they actually care about. So it immediately calls into question, what are your actual goals? And we can always find some materialist some power, some influence goal that it has nothing to do with their stated goals of human rights or democracy. So do you think it's limiting or do you think it's valuable to continue to do this calling out of hypocrisy? Oh, no, I, I think they I mean, I don't think they care, but I don't really care what they think. So it it um, it's not about that, right? Like everything that we're doing goes back to the ongoing um, the ongoing historical responsibility we have to create an anti-war movement that actually has political influence in wherever we are, where we happen to be. And um, again, like every rhetorical or argumentative uh, or affective or educational tool that we have at our disposal, we have to use. And, which is why, you know, I think the first time we what about her came up i was like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna stop this because people accuse me of what about why would i give up such an important tool because somebody calls it what about like that, that that's not gonna stop 
me. Um, Stop so, using yeah. that really good argument. It's not fair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That's wor it's working too well. It's not fair. Exactly. Um, so no, that's not. Uh, I, I do absolutely think uh, it's it's important to keep doing it, and um, you know, it's it's like it, 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 these are all things that show, like. There's more to anti-imperialism than words, obviously, but there's no, there's no, there's no way to do it without lots of words, <laughs> you know? So, uh, and like, we're definitely not at a stage of like being able to do civil disobedience actions with 100,000 people. So it's going to be words for... You know, it's always it's it's all in between upsurges. All we have is words and arguments and 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 putting our arguments out there. So, you know, yeah, just like you said, the, you know, when they when they accuse you of something nasty, it's basically because they're they're upset that your arguments are working or they're effective. Yeah, and one last word about that term, moral equivalency. We didn't get to talk about that as much. I do think it's largely used the same way that whataboutism is yeah, used. Yeah, I mean, I remember Hitchens called, Hitchens was like, you're veering close to moral equivalence, you know, when you're when you're accusing the U.S. of doing so, the same things as Saddam Hussein or whatever. So, like, this, the, when I heard that, I was like, I don't understand what the hell he's saying. Um, but Chomsky has talked about it too, and I, I, I'm, I, like, my sense was the whole point of saying that, of accusing someone of veering close to moral equivalence, they're basically saying the U.S. is morally superior, so far superior to everything else that if you would dare compare or make some kind of moral equivalence between some inferior race or inferior country to the U.S., then you're automatically going to be laughed out of an argument, which I, I just, I, again, like, I don't think they're morally equivalent. I think the U.S. is vastly morally inferior <laughs> to any, anything almost anybody could do or even conceive of doing. Well, Chomsky so, was at his best, right? At, well, among his best moments was right after 9-11. I went back for this podcast in particular, but... Uh, just in general, his, his post 9-11 stuff is really good, and he does this interview where someone accuses him of moral equivalency because he does that thing where he's like, well, there are lots of cases of terrorism. Uh, for example, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Nick, there we have a world court case that says the United States committed an act of terrorism, a grave act of terrorism against Nicaragua in the 1980s by funding the Contras, killing tens of thousands of people. And the interviewer, I don't even know who it was, called, says, like, aren't you engaged in some kind of moral equivalency? And he goes, oh, I, would, I wouldn't I would dream of it. <laughs> because one of those cases is far worse than the other. I would never dream of comparing the September 11th attacks, grave as they were, to the Nicaragua attacks, which were exponentially worse. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's like, it, it's, an, again, it's a term that's only used... It, it, the person who's saying that has the foregone conclusion that you couldn't possibly say that the United States commits crimes that are worse than the alleged enemies. And the foregone conclusion is that, is that by nature of the acts being committed by the United States, they are less nefarious than acts committed by other countries or other societies, or groups of people, etc. Um, yeah, so moral equivalency, tankies, what a battery, what about us, and these are all terms that we, anti-imperialist people on the left, should not take seriously. They, the reason that they're being deployed is because 
if you're being accused of it, it's because you're making a good argument. It's not the end point, but it certainly is a starting point. If you can call people out on the for supporting the very behaviors that they claim to oppose and claim to be the reason for violence in whatever form, sanctions or actual warfare or demonization of another country, then it's extremely valuable. It shows that what they claim they stand for, they don't actually stand for and allows you to look for their true intentions. Uh, but Justin, I, of course, you get the final word, but uh, if, you, if you have anything you'd like to promote, uh, are you working on something new? Do you have any final comments on, the, uh, on these concepts? And of course, let us know where we can find your work. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the Anti-Empire Project. What am I working on? We're, on, we're doing Civilizations, uh, the Civilization series. We uh, are covering the entire, uh, we're, we're covering world, modern world history. We started in, you know, 1500 and we're, we're in the, we're in the 19, we're in early 1900 now, Scramble for Africa. Um, probably about halfway through, we're, we're on South Africa now. Um, we just recorded a, an episode about Cecil Rhodes. Uh, so that'll be up in a couple of weeks. Um, talk about imperialists. <laughs> uh, yeah. And he's still other. very much revered, I believe, in, in British culture, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, statues have been falling since yeah, the statues true. were falling. Um, um, yeah, that series is really enjoyable. I've fallen a bit behind on the on the most recent episodes, but I'm I'm going to catch up because uh, again, like you take us through these moments in history that you know I as a history teacher I don't know much about, so I'm certainly getting my tutorial in world history from the podcast. Well, that's exactly you know we we kind of pitch we kind of our ideal you um, listener is a is a some kind of history teacher actually who wants to uh, you know get ready for their class <laughs> <laughs> and and you only gave yourself the ambitious uh task of summarizing basically all of the last 500 years of yeah exactly, imperialist exactly. history <laughs> exactly and we, we were planning to do it in 13 weeks you know and it's been um, over it's been like a year and it's been a few months years. Oh, it's been two. <laughs> well, About 80 episodes or something i don't know i'm just gonna plug in your podcast and play it for students in class and that'll be the, just, the curriculum just, you know just have them binge it you know, it'd be good if they could listen at two times speed or something well justin i really appreciate you joining me to talk about these topics i hope we talk again soon but keep oh, yeah. keep up the great work your writing's amazing your podcast is amazing and i i should say we talk about serious topics but listening to justin's podcast it's always light-hearted despite the serious subject matter and i i hope that uh that comes through here and you know as dark as this subject matter can be you know we do find uh, and Justin, in particular, on his podcast, finds ways to somehow keep it lighthearted, which is uh, something I respect. But uh, Justin, thank you so much. Thanks, Find man. Justin's work at poder.org. Lots of stuff that you can read there. All of his writings there. And we'll see you next time on In the Context of Empire. Thank you so much, Justin. Thank you, man.